Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Genesis Temple podcast. This is Damiano and today we have a very interesting guest. He's a game developer, he's a game writer, he was a game journalist. He's Xavier Nelson Jr. He's the developer of such unique games as an airport for aliens currently run by dogs and Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator, which we will talk about in this podcast. Okay, time to hit the floor and see what Xalavi has in store for us. So, Xalavi, I would like to go back to the past now, before we look at the present and the future. And I would like to ask you, what games do you remember playing as a child the most? What games did you like? Anything that come to mind? Yeah, uh, I was definitely fascinated by games like The Elder Scrolls Three Morrowind, uh, the strange Scholastic games that you that you would end up with, like Reader Rabbit and so on and so forth. They would have their educate their education golden path, but then they would have explicit mini games tied off from that, as well as like ways of utterly breaking the flow of the uh, main quest if you didn't uh, click through things in the order that you were supposed to. So from an early age, I had this deep experience with taking uh, a typical experience or a game with a typical flow and altering it in some fundamental way, looking for what it was actually saying. And if it wasn't actually saying something, finding that it wasn't actually saying something and uh, learning that I could go to the end game of the Magic School Bus's uh, <laughs> astronomy adventure <laughs> from the start of the game and just get all the upgrade points on Pluto uh, and also get locked into an unplayable end game state because I didn't have the right upgrades to get over the thing I was supposed to midway through the level and just getting into that again and again and again, that has stuck with me. Um, I didn't realize... I was of the age to not realize that memory cards were a thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had consoles and memory, memory cards. We just didn't have memory cards. Or maybe my dad wisely did not have the memory card in the console mm. at all times. Mm. So I played through the beginning section of uh, the Elder Scroll, sorry, uh, The Legend of Zelda Wind Waker, like dozens of times not realizing that there was more game in there and so this strange atypical fractured Rashomon uh, look at how games are constructed and came to be was embedded into me at an early age so you you basically got a sort of a crash course lesson on how to uh, do an introduction to an RPG basically <laughs> playing over, over and over the introduction to, to Zelda to RPGs and in particular uh, games that experiencing normal games in a fractured way will tell you a lot about how they're constructed and why. You, you also mentioned Morrowind. Uh, what was it about Morrowind that you that you liked? I'm curious. Uh, that my dad played it. Uh, he mm. played a lot of it. Uh, mm -hmm. I finally convinced him to let me play. I got the chance to get into the world. I answered. I, I loved answering that beginning quiz. Uh, I was irritated by the horrific elf man uh, who's just very rude to you as soon as you get off the boat, tried to figure out a way to kill him, uh, saved my game, turned it off. 
the next day I hear a strangled scream. I had overwritten my dad's <laughs> 300 plus hour end game save. Oh no. <laughs> with my uh, attempted murder shenanigan. And so he went all in trying to recover that, that that data, trying to you know get back to the point in the game that he was at. He let me play again, and wow, I made the exact that's... same mistake. <laughs> the third time, he put maybe 10 hours into it. It was very... He, he enjoyed and appreciated that game in that world, but I think I had broken him. Uh, and it happened a third time, maybe? Wow, that's... <laughs> uh, and then after he was done playing it, I wasn't, at the time, super interested in playing it myself. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, I was looking up to my dad. So uh, the lesson here is, after that first time, it's all on him. <laughs> yeah, at this point, yes. <laughs> Joke's on him for being a good dad. Yeah, for being, you know, for actually wanting his, uh, his kid to play Morrowind. <laughs> <laughs> he should have just kept the game for himself and um but uh, is there a game in particular that you think among those you played as a as a child or when you were young that you th- you think had the most influence on your uh, work as a game designer i think if we're talking about games that have the most influence on you mm-hmm. alan wake is very high up on the list because mm. alan wake is the game that made me want to become a writer uh, okay. I played it at a formative age, and I had hated writing up until that point. And playing Alan Wake, even though it contextualizes writing in a horrific and eldritch way, it presented the power of words in such a compelling way that uh, I ended up becoming one myself. If anyone ever asks why I have been doomed, damned, to a fate of having to write things for a living, uh, it's Alan Wake's fault, and I plan to personally confront Sam Lake at some point in the future. <laughs> to, to, to ask him why did he did, did he make this game that cursed you to become a, a why did he personally force a twelve year old black kid in Germany <laughs> to pl- <laughs> to become a writer for his profession? Why would he do this to the youth of tomorrow? <laughs> it would be interesting. If you have asked that question, let me know if he answers. <laughs> or if he just runs away screaming, which probably is the, the most appropriate reaction, I would say. Um, uh, so, so you got... Um, basically, you started writing uh, games around 2016, if I'm not mistaken. 15? 16. Uh, let me see when my first game came out. It's a... I have to actually remember the date now, which is terrifying. Uh, 2016 was when I made my... was when I made and released my first game. Since then, you've basically been doing the... you've been playing the indie uh, developers, as we say. Um, would you... how would you say the market has changed in six years, which, you know, maybe if we think about it, it's not that long of a period of time but i think actually the market has quite changed so what do you think has changed most we saw the rise of subscriptions uh we had a drastic change in distribution methods the peak thing that rises to my mind though is that we've essentially seen indie developers become 
AA developers without the safety net of AA developers. So in the past, if you had a licensed product, it would be made by someone like THQ. THQ was a publicly traded company <laughs> on the stock market. Uh, and they made all the SpongeBob games. Now you're seeing people like Bithel Games make the John Wick uh, strategy game, uh, John Wick Hex. Excellent. It's great. They did a great job with it. Uh, it's really interesting to see creators with a really strong voice be able to take on large IP, uh, larger budgets. That's compelling. But it is terrifying from the aspect of now we're seeing developers of a drastically larger size, uh, sorry, a drastically smaller size tackling the challenges and the infrastructure needs of significantly larger organizations with no safety net. Uh, this has been reflected in the funding amounts offered by publishers. I saw it, the average number on a publishing deal go from like 100,000 to like 250,000 to 500,000 to the normal sort of range a lot of publishers are looking for these days is one to three million minimum. Mm. And the degree to which that locks out new and marginalized voices, the degree to which that adds an exponential amount of stress and risk to every single project because we aren't leaning into the freedom of games to exist at all scopes that is currently open due to our distribution models and player bases. But we are instead gunning for the same brass ring as everyone else and trying to make everything into uh, a global mega hit or franchise. Mm -hmm. It is strangling our industry and the degree to which that will have ongoing impacts on the people who make our games and on the business of games going forward is something that I am watching with interest and fear, to be frank. Uh, we'll definitely see in this come up, uh, having to actually struggle with this bigger and bigger franchises, which you actually wouldn't see anything like that happening even two or three years ago, maybe even four years ago. So it's pretty recent thing and uh, uh, you know for a player it's interesting because you see you know major franchises actually being developed by smaller teams so with uh, with a quite a, a grasp on the project so they can work on something smaller and maybe a little more unique for an, an end product but yeah I, I guess that from the developer side it must be quite more uh, scary <laughs> especially for, uh, for many cases and about uh, you personally, your work, um, what did you say you have learned, especially in, in, since starting in 2016 un until now for, in order to uh, better refund your work, your writing, your design as well? I think, so I've been in this industry since, I'm trying to remember the date now. Uh, I've been here for 13 years. I started as uh, a games journalist at the age of 12, pretending to be an adult so I could get a job and it somehow worked. <laughs> and the things I've seen since that time, I think the primary lessons that I've taken away and that 
influence everything about my philosophy and uh, perspective as I now lead a studio and am responsible for all sorts of projects and lives at this point is deep skepticism of anyone who says this is the way that things need to be produced. Hmm. I don't believe that the chief point of innovation for games going forward is in our graphics tech or in our gameplay technology or even necessarily in how people play our games. I believe the chief area of innovation is the strategies, methodologies, and arrangements that production can take on now. I think our chief area of innovation is production. Uh, how, why, when, and where a game comes together is a magical thing uh, that instead of a, those opportunities being actively explored, I'm seeing as the consolidation of the industry continues in this as people assume this is the way you make a profitable game as they do in any area of games, as I've seen succeed and fail hundreds, thousands of times over at this point. In contrast to that, the opportunity is being ignored. And so I consider my personal purpose in everything I do in some way is to explore how we can make games better, faster, cheaper, and healthier than they are currently assumed to have to be built. And uh, the more people tell me this isn't the way games can or should work, uh, and the more we prove them wrong with literally <laughs> every release, we haven't really had an unprofitable release yet, uh, the more convinced I am that we have to explore alternative paths and varying scopes and purposes that a game can exist to further because otherwise we are all banking our futures on the very next game and depriving our medium of the power a voice can have once it has 10, 20, 30 years of experience underneath its belt. Mm -hmm. So you're basically saying a sort of a philosophical change, a point, basically another philosophical point of view or political maybe point of view rather than just a technical change in the industry. Yeah, I believe games can be made better, faster, cheaper and healthier. Uh, I don't know if that's a political point. Uh, I don't know if it's a philosophical point. It's probably a little bit of both. Uh, but... I am not interested in exploring games if that simultaneous exploration into the frontiers of how games can be produced is also uh, being delved into. Because otherwise, what is the point? What is the point of a game that even manages to hit the jackpot and sell millions of copies if the people who built it are destroyed in its wake. I would argue there is none. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fighting against the, the crunch, let's say. That's, uh, that, that, that's actually been a thing for uh, many years because, you know, crunch has really been sort of integrated into our discourse, uh, you know, our daily talk about games 
I think since two, three years ago, maybe four. Uh, but it has been going on for a lot of years, ever since I think the early '90s. I think ever since games really began being a sort of uh, medium that was uh, professional and and sold a lot of copies basically so yeah crunch is actually an old problem i mean we we, we might think of it as a kind of a new problem but it's actually quite old unfortunately yeah all, all all of the things that afflict us uh have a root somewhere these these problems aren't new the things the strategies i'm talking about in the vast majority of cases are not new uh the thing that defines them like there's a precedent for making, for example, a single studio making a lot of variations on a theme mm-hmm. or a lot of different uh, explorations of similar philosophical concepts. We saw that with that happen with like microprose back in the day, uh, as well as a number of things in the put a floppy into a plastic bag era of video games. The Ziploc. Uh, and even further back than that, all sorts of ways of exploring how efficiency, uh, diversity, both in the people who make the games and the, and the types of games that are produced. We've been exploring that since the beginning of our medium in one way or another. It's just, we are very good at forgetting our lessons in games and, and, and our history. If only because we either burn people out of the industry or we eject them out of mainstream relevance in the industry within a few years of their careers beginning. This also ties in with another thing that I wanted to talk about, which is um, uh, something that I took talk with uh, various game writers, which is writing about um, sensitive topics in, uh, in games. Uh, this is something so I've researched for a while and uh, of course, there are some some people that say something interesting in that. Also, of course, game writers have a sort of responsibility towards their audience, which I I agree with, of course. Uh, so I would like also to have your opinion on this. How do you, as a writer, tackle uh, sensitive topics in your uh, in your game? Do you think of research and whenever you're tackling a sensitive topic, I do believe there is a baseline of responsibility attached to it. Uh, I think research is definitely a part of this. I think (laughs) for lack of a better term, being good at your job and being able to invest your narrative with nuance is a hugely important topic. Uh, And if, and barring that having people in several stages of the project who can advise uh, sensitivity read and push back on your worst instincts uh, or on instincts that you don't even know are incorrect to tell the story that you're attempting to uh, convey in a sensitive way. I think that those are all important, but I think before all of that, a really valuable skill to build up and something that I constantly ask myself is, should I be making this game at all? Yes, I care about this topic. Yes, I care about, say, this marginalized group. Maybe I am a part of this marginalized group. But is this a story I should try to tell? Is this a story that I have the capability to tell, either in terms of resources or in terms of personal skill uh, or in terms of the 
team I could assemble to build this thing. Uh, before embarking on any journey, asking whether it is a journey that should be embarked upon in the first place is, I think, a critical skill and perspective for creators to build up. And it is not a surprise that often uh, straight, cis, white men uh, do not question this at all and say, I think I'm going to make a game about the trauma of motherhood. And they just go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I've done my research on motherhood. I've read like 10 books. I've talked with my mom. I know all there is to know about motherhood. So I definitely. Bleeding is really like, that's just, that's scary, right? <laughs> scary, right? <laughs> Yeah, and actually, I've seen a couple of examples of, of this. Um, I won't name the game for, you know, for uh, it's pretty recent as well. But, uh, you know, writing a game about uh, a, a female protagonist who is affected by mental illness and also touching upon various topics about, uh, uh, men, you know, abortion and rape and all of that uh and having an entire team of men writers handling this topic and i've criticized this and people have answered me oh but they've done the research and i was about to say who cares <laughs> i mean could, you know couldn't they have a woman on the team maybe you know just a, a sensitivity reader a consultant whatever i mean she doesn't need to be a writer but at least you know, a doctor, I don't know, someone that could actually help in doing something else. And But no, I guess they've done the research, so that's okay. That's all they need to, to do. It, it, it's, it, that's, that's the thing, right? Like, it, it, it is it's a very critical question of why are you telling this story? Why are you telling this story? Uh, especially if you don't already have a person of color say on the team if you don't have a woman on the team if they are on the team but not in a position to have an influence a significant influence on the creative decisions of the project mm -hmm. what inspired you to say i am going to make this game it, it, it's not a particularly uh it doesn't feel like a particularly polite question to ask, especially in the moment. But uh, I think it is a necessary one if we are going to improve the way that we tell stories in general going forward in our medium. Uh, something, and it is something that I ask myself constantly. Should I make this game? Why am I making this game? Uh, who am I making it with? And what is the impact it's going to have on all of us producing uh, this project because I do that so often it is I, I can take for granted uh, that other people aren't asking that question and it is usually very clear <laughs> that the question is not being considered yeah I can definitely agree um, uh, what about um, content warnings how do you feel about them do you think they are useful tool for the writer or you know not so much i believe uh it is important for audiences to be able to 
share and produce content warnings, uh, it is impossible to capture the full scope of what will impact a person uh, negatively in the production of your game. Maybe they, one common example that's been talked about more and more often is maybe they lost a parent. Uh, And so storylines that feature parents heavily, you know, just earthbound calling your dad can end up being a traumatic experience for a person. Of course. Capturing that full scope of what a, uh, of what is in a work and also rendering down what a work communicates into the potentially problematic elements or not, it, it doesn't appear to be a necessarily great way to either provide uh, those warnings or to absorb and discuss a work as a whole. So uh, something I feel very strongly about personally is uh, I think that it's a positive thing that content warnings can exist uh, and that we are are building an increasing sensitivity towards the triggers and um, towards the triggers and uh, individual experiences that people will have engaging with any portion of our works. So with all of that said, I believe it's very important to have community resources for that. But I think for example, putting on the front page of your game, you know, your own limited understanding of, you know, what the content warnings of the game might be is both an imperfect and uh, an unhelpful solution. So when I see something like, uh, I believe this, the website is called does the dog die? Oh, and yeah. the entire point of the website is, yeah, does the an, an animal die? Does an animal die in this game? Is it killed by the player? Uh, and what is, what is the context for it? Those are great. Those are humans helping humans to understand their very uh, the hu- very human concerns and individual concerns, unique concerns for even that they may have. Uh, but I think if we extend that very positive movement to a moral burden on creators to uh, exhaustively label every part of their work. Uh, that's both unsustainable uh, and and not healthy. Yeah. Because on one end, of course, the, the most effective content warning would basically be a spoiler at this point, because, of course, if you're just uh, running a list of all potentially of offensive I don't know sensitive topics that might be in a game of course you're just probably ruining the plot for <laughs> anyone that want, wants to wants to play so there's also that um, and, and something else that has come up for example in my research is that some developers have said um, oh you know but uh, the theme that we're going to with this game basically already says anything that we would want to write in a content warning so in this example it would be it's a cyberpunk game so you're expecting like issues of uh, poverty and issues of violence and that's also kind of a risky position (laughs) if you're going that way just saying you know the theme says it all yeah because because it doesn't it doesn't yeah it doesn't Uh, you can do a cyberpunk treatment in a in a deeply optimistic way uh but with one thing that will still uh, be uh 
potentially genuinely tra- traumatic to your audience. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not against content warnings, but I, I, it, I think you give a perfect example there of this being in the hands of creators uh, can often produce deeply imperfect and impractical results because they're like, oh, it's a cyberpunk game. Well, don't you expect that? And it's like, no, no. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't expect to see my playing a Call of Duty game. There's a Call of Duty game where in first person, it's in the first hour of the game, mm-hmm. you're knocked to the ground. Your arms are ripped off of your body by a robot who stands over you. And they beat you with your own severed arm. <laughs> I don't think anyone walking into a Call of Duty, even a far future one, was thinking, oh yeah, that's a scene I'm going to have to witness. <laughs> so empower communities to uh, meaningfully talk about and discuss those elements in your work to create those labels and have ver- have accepted m- mainstream sources of looking for that type of information. But uh, outside of that, empowering creative visions so that we can have work that can be meaningfully discussed, even if it is uh, hilarious and terrifying and terrible, is uh, I think that's all worthy. And that's that's another thing I'm, I'm interested and excited in exploring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think uh, possibly reviewers could also help with uh, this kind of potentially you know sensitive topics in providing readers with uh, information about this kind of topics uh, if of course the the creators hadn't done that or if they see something more because you know if sometimes uh, a new pair of eyes can actually see something something new that might be for their experience uh, possibly sensitive topics as you said your parents have just recently died or or your dog again so uh, there's lots of things that might be uh, sensitive topics that even we can imagine if we sit down right now and write everything that comes to our mind we will probably still miss like a dozen or maybe more so yeah yeah i i I, and i do for what it's worth see uh more and more uh critics taking that uh ability uh as a, a genuine piece of the profession, which is a really exciting and cool thing to see. Uh, when a big horror game comes out, uh, I will nine times out of 10, if there's something that either in the marketing was not flagged or if it just handles su- its subject material in a piss poor way, uh, the reviewer will talk about that as well as are the graphics good? Is the gameplay good? And that speaks to an overall increasing maturity of our medium that I hope to see matched uh, in other areas as time goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Something else that I was um, interested to talk about, because uh, a few months ago, um, you wrote um, a reply on the, if I wasn't, if I'm not wrong, on the Steam forums, about someone that was talking about the interface to uh, Space Warlord. They were talking about some problems with the interface that they thought could be improved and blah, blah, blah. And you said something that quite struck struck me uh, about the interface uh, being used as a kind of a narrative element. And this is something that we haven't really seen 
a lot of it, at least that I <laughs> that I know, at least in discussions. Because of course, you, you you we usually talk about environmentally storytelling and how we can we improve storytelling and making it, make it different from movies because we don't have to copy movies, or at least that's my opinion. Uh, blah blah. But interface, that's a, that's a great one. And so, would you like to elaborate a bit on this? What would you say? Would you like to to see more, or would you like to do more with this uh, concept of? of uh, doing narrative with a technical element with an interface or something like that. I I think we've always been using interfaces as narrative devices. This mm-hmm. this concept itself is not new and I won't take credit for it. <laughs> but uh discussion around this is the part that I would say is currently nascent. Uh, and this actually is partially revealed by um, a Steam interaction that we had again recently. So someone asked, how do I deal with debt in the game? And they said, hey, I took an offer from a, a dude offered me, you know, a free mythical heart. Uh, and this is, in a hype, this is in a game we made called Space Warlord or Organ Trading Simulator. It's a sci-fi body horror market tycoon game in a hyper-capitalist universe. What? Sorry, cookies just got brought into the room. Cookies as part of as narrative element. Cookies is narrative element. Sorry, sorry. So what I was saying was, uh, this person, this person came onto the forums and they said, "How do I deal with debt in the game?" I got offered an item for free, mm-hmm. and then a little bit later, uh, this person took twenty thousand credits from me. They called in the favor, the debt that had been incurred, mm-hmm. uh, and. Then I, my ba- my balance went into the negative, uh, and I responded. There was you know a, a uh, mechanic in the game where events would occur that would give you money if you were in negative balance, usually with some uh, humiliating uh, in world context. Right, uh, you get a holographic tattoo on your head that's an ad from like a big company uh, and then you can continue trading. Um, it is because it's attached to the event system, mm-hmm. how many days it's going to take. It's going to happen pretty quickly, but it's still a random amount of time. And each time you press that trade button, there's basically nothing you can do until that event pops up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I explained the mechanic. I explained that they were their Their game save had not been destroyed. They instead were now in a role-playing period where they had made a deal that uh, they had made a deal that had consequences, and they were now experiencing those consequences. Good luck. <laughs> and I really love their response because it shows the two warring desires we're really seeing from players right now. They said that they really liked the concept. They really liked the fact that they took a deal that they knew would probably bite them in the butt later from a person that they didn't trust. They trusted uh, a military oligarch warlord. (laughs) And then this military oligarch warlord betrayed them. Who knew? But it felt bad that then they were essentially stuck until... um, for an, 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 an indeterminate, a brief but indeterminate period of time until their 
actions within the game world could continue. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I am, this is a, a, a growing thought. So excuse me for its current vagueness. This is something I'm calling the fuck around and find out paradox. People love to fuck around. It's so, so for some people, it's their favorite thing to do. But finding out, having a game world acknowledge that action and meaningfully allow them to explore the consequences of going down that road, it seems like there is the warring desire within a player base of having the idea that there could be consequences in, within the world or that the interface could be antagonistic or that there is something that does not work towards their direct desires, but that that could be, that that is essential to providing a compelling experience and that, uh, that for some people, they don't want to experience that at all. They want basically the equivalent of a jump scare. There is something bad here. But it's momentary, uh, and actually, the game experience as a whole is not is not affected. One of my favorite experiences that that um, I have had playing a game comes from Dead Rising Two. Hmm. Dead Rising is not a series about building absurd weaponry to fight zombies. It's actually a game series about its timer. The timer is what binds the entire experience. So, in Dead Rising, there was a timer that went over everything, along with like in-game events that happened at certain times that structured it. Dead Rising 2 had both of those elements and added this additional one that was every 12 hours on the hour, you had to give your daughter a shot of mm. this zombie vaccine right. so that she wouldn't turn. Uh, and this meant that you both had to gather that resource out in the world and that every 12 hours, you had to make sure you were in the room so you could administer this medicine to your daughter. I had been doing really well throughout the game. I had saved a lot of people. Uh, when you save enough people in Dead Rising 2 and you come back to your hub base, you may find that they have set up a poker game. And this is, and by playing this poker game, it's tasteful strip poker. Uh, you can basically get people's outfits. So there's a dude in a giant knight costume. If you want that knight costume, you have to beat him in poker. So uh, I've been saving people. I've got a downtime period. I find this poker game. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm going to get a knight outfit. I'm going to get a businessman outfit. Here's like this colorful dancer. I'm going to get her outfit. I'm going to get all these outfits. Mm -hmm. I'm playing. I do badly. I do well. I knock out every other player except for this dang businessman who is a card shark. Every time he's pulling out some horrific uh, set of cards and I feel like I've got him on the ropes, but then I don't. And this is happening. And I look in the right corner of the screen the where time. it lists the tasks and objectives in the time. Mm -hmm. And my daughter Zombrick shot is a sliver of red. That's how much time I have. And at that moment, also because you have to save the game, it doesn't auto-save because it has discrete save points. If I was to keep playing this poker game to win this businessman's suit so I could wear it, and the time passed, not only would my daughter be zombified, making me officially the worst father in history, <laughs> but game would be over 
and I would have to reload a save, losing hours of progress and all the other cool outfits I had earned. <laughs> Eventually, I am I start physically sweating as I'm like, just lose, lose, you. Do you not see what you're doing to my daughter? You're doing this to my daughter. <laughs> and eventually I get up from the table. I sprint down the corridor and I'm like, here, honey, here's your medicine. And I managed to get it just as it would have turned. <laughs> because the game presented a clear, consistent, logical set of consequences and uh, activities, diversions, and and a given perspective of play, I got to have an emergent emotional experience to what would otherwise be if the game if the game didn't have a timer, it was just a matter of when I eventually decide to get to my daughter. Maybe I should do a few more quests first. Uh, if the game had a timer but did not penalize me for hitting events, or maybe I can restart them or whatever else again would have had a different thing. If the game even auto-saved, mm -hmm. I would have had a different emotional reaction, but these things that you could argue were potentially abrasive parts of the interface or of the way in which the game functioned were core to not just producing that experience, but to the game as a whole being able to exist on its creative vision. And that is the fuck around and find out paradox. I am not sure... I want to make games that don't provide some element of that uh, consequence anymore. Not only because they are the games that deeply touch me now, but they provide, quite simply, something interesting to talk about. When you have a game just as a streamlined sluice for content to be shoveled down your throat... Uh, there's nothing wrong with having a game. That's just a good time. There's nothing wrong with having a game that's streamlined. But when this streamlining happens to the detriment of providing both the intended creative vision and giving the player something to meaningfully react to, even if that reaction is, I don't like this, I think that as an artistic medium, we lose. That's a very long-winded way to say, uh, I'm... I'm not a bad father because I did get up from the table and I did give my daughter her medicine. And two, uh, when we talk about interface as storytelling, when we talk about supposedly abrasive uh, or unoptimal ways of storytelling I, or gameplay or UI, I call bullshit because anything, even in especially things that are frustrating in a game, can and should be intentional elements of delivering something to the player and having a meaningful dialogue with them. Because you, because when I play that streamlined content, Lewis, I may experience beautiful writing and art and mm -hmm. compelling gameplay. <clears throat> But I'll tell you what I don't have, which is a meaningful interaction with the creator. I feel nothing because they are defanged of all possibilities to impact my experience in a way that matters and that gives us a indirect, asynchronous way that crosses time and space to have a conversation through play. 
what we're building as conversations through play isn't robbing ourselves of the ability to deliver that the greatest tragedy of all. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, something that actually reminded me of the first time I played uh, Grand Theft Auto 3. Uh, and I remember when I was actually arrested uh, since... Yeah, you know, everyone was advertising this as the you know, the new evolution of the franchise. I had played the old ones, you know, the ones in 2D, basically the, the top-down view. Yeah. And I got arrested. I thought, yeah, this is going to start a whole new chapter of me being in prison or trying to rehabilitate myself and something. But again, no, nothing happened. As you said, just a way of you just pay your, um, your, your fee to the police, whatever. And you continue playing and basically nothing happens. So you can fuck around as much as you want, as you said, and nothing happens. Which, of course, is fun because, yeah, I mean, GTA sells a shitload of copies. So sure, it's fun. But, yeah, it's, uh, at least for me, in the long run, it doesn't really mean anything. Because it just continue playing, just continue playing. Nothing happens. And in contrast, the way they handle health to this day, if you die... Money gets taken from you. You're placed somewhere else in the world at some hospital. It's probably way far away from what you were trying to do. Is that frustrating? Yeah. But that creates this storytelling opportunity for how you got back to the location, how you lost that health in the first place. This, The fact that you drove a motorbike off of a cliff and tried to do five backflips in a row for a cool video and slammed like a Looney Tune character into a tree and then ended up at this hospital with a nominal consequence to mark that what you did mattered. That's meaningful. Uh, and that is something where you can F around and find out. Uh, another great game for this is Death Stranding, where mm -hmm. you go on actual journeys with your actual feet, and you're taking that journey one step at a time. If you decide to carry 200 pounds of... Cargo on your back, good for you. If you try to hide in a bush, people will see the giant wobbling stack of crates in the bush. <laughs> Stealth is kind of irrelevant. Um, you deal with the actual consequences of carrying that much cargo. Uh, you get to experience the logistics of, okay, here's what I have. Here's what I'm trying to do. Here's where I'm trying to do it. I think I'm going to build a ladder here and then a bridge there. And then I think uh, I might throw my packages down instead of trying to go down this chasm because they'll still be safe because they're still in their containers and there isn't a time fall. You get to have a logical, you get, to, my favorite thing in a game is you is when you get to live in the brain space of a different world and solve problems from that perspective. Uh, and if Death Stranding compromised on its perspective uh, if it did not if it allowed you to just kind of carry all objects as these abstract things in your inventory and actually you're a mobile uh, and finely modeled version of Norman Reedus at all times the game becomes less and the medium becomes less uh, yeah I, I guess I'm done making games for cowards. That's very good. So, so to wrap it up, we could say, yeah, yeah, choices matter, but consequences matter as well. 
if we want our choices to matter, we have to provide consequences and a context that allows those choices to be meaningful. Uh, otherwise, we're playing pretend. And playing pretend has its place, but if everything is playing pretend, then nothing matters.